Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 148. We'll begin the book of Zechariah with a brief summary of chapters 1 through 3 and follow with some thoughts about clunky and elegant exposition. For those of you just joining us, we're 11 twelfths of the way through the book of the Twelve deep into the post-return to Zion period, 20 years after the fateful announcement of Cyrus the Great, King of the Persians, telling the Jews that they can finally go home. Well, the Jews are home, and it's not going as well as one would hope. You got a little glimpse of this in the previous episode of Chagai, Zechariah is drawing from the same well of inspiration. In 295 chapters, Ezra will name both Chagai and Zechariah as causes for the resurgence of the people's spirit and the rebuilding of the temple. Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, is also the grandson of Edo the prophet. It seems prophecy and cockeyed optimism run in the family. Chapter 1 begins, quote, in the eighth month of the second year of Darius, with Zechariah informing us that, quote, the Lord was very angry with your fathers. The Hebrew captures the spitting rage better, quote, Katsef Adonai alavotechem Katsef. Why? Do you even have to ask? Well, okay, since you're asking, quote, when the earlier prophets called to them, thus said the Lord of hosts, come, turn back from your evil ways and your evil deeds, they did not obey or give heed to me. And even when the fathers figured it out and realized the error in their ways, it was too late. Quote, the Lord hath dealt with us according to our ways and our deeds, just as he purposed. Then something odd happens. Verse 7, quote, on the 24th day of the 11th month of the second year of Darius, the month of Shvat, this word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, son of Ido. Did you catch it? Almost four months go by between the end of verse 6 and the beginning of verse 7. No explanation. Just a Chiron at the bottom of the screen. And Zechariah has a vision, quote, I saw a man mounted on a bay horse, standing among the myrtles in the deep, and behind him were bay, sorrel, and white horses. Hmm, what could this mean? Well, Zechariah asks, and an angel replies, quote, I will let you know what they are. That's awful nice of him. And then the man among the myrtles, purple rose of Cairo style, turns to Zechariah and explains. My God, you must really love this picture. Me? You've been here all day, and I've seen you here twice before. You mean me? Yes, you, you, you. This is the fifth time you're seeing this. Henry, come here, quickly. I gotta speak to you. Oh my god! Listen, old sport, you're on the wrong side. Mom, get back here, we're in the middle of a story! Go ahead and look around. Come on without me. We can't continue with the story. It seems the man among the myrtles was sent out by God to roam the earth to see how tranquil it was, which irritates the angel because the same tranquility has been deprived to Judah. Quote, O Lord of hosts, how long will you withhold pardon from Jerusalem and the towns of Judah, which you placed into a curse 70 years ago? So God relents and decides to dole out punishment to those who punished Judah too severely. God will also return to Jerusalem, facilitate the rebuilding of the temple, and lavish praise and good times on the Jews. Chapter 2 continues in the prophetic state with Zechariah looking up and seeing four horns. The angel, who's still here, explains that the horns are, quote, the horns that toss Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. They are followed by four smiths. Children, 
which the exposition-filled angel quickly explains are coming to hew down the horns of the nations that, quote, raised a horn against the land of Judah to toss it. Then Zechariah sees a man holding a measuring line. This man, Zechariah soon discovers, is off to measure Jerusalem to, quote, see how long and wide it is to be. But wait! There's more! That expositioning angel meets another angel, and the second angel tells our friendly expositioning angel to spread the word that Jerusalem will no longer need walls, not only because it will be so overflowing with people, but because God will protect it with walls of fire. Then, Zechariah dispatches two calls, the first to the Jews still back in Babylon, urging them to come to Zion, and the second to the Jews in Zion themselves, informing them that God is coming to take up permanent residence in Jerusalem, which should be a cause for joy and celebration. Chapter 3 is still in the prophetic mode, this time with a vision slightly more down to earth, starting with a familiar face, that of Yehoshua ben Yehotzadak, the high priest. Before we discover him standing before the angel of God wearing filthy garments with Satan the accuser, standing at his right to accuse him. But the angel rebukes the accuser and tells his attendants to remove the filthy garments from Yoshua and clothe him in priestly robes with a diadem on his head. He then tells Yoshua, quote, If you walk in my paths and keep my charge, you in turn will rule my house and guard my courts, and I will permit you to move out among these attendants. The attendants are a sign of the return of God's servant known as the branch, a leader from the house of David. He then places a stone before Yoshua, a stone with seven eyes, symbolizing the cleansing of the land of sin and creating the conditions where, quote, you will be inviting each other to the shade of vines and fig trees. And on that very trippy note, here endeth the lesson. Exposition, as defined by the dictionary app in my MacBook, is a comprehensive description and explanation of an idea or theory. In the world of narrative, exposition has an important function. Exposition provides important background information about, say, setting, characters' backstories, prior plot events, historical context, and whatnot. In short, it establishes the world in which the story takes place. Including is a common technique where the reader or viewer is gradually exposed to this essential background info. The key is to clue the reader or viewer without them being aware of it. The word is attributed to sci-fi and fantasy author Joe Walton, who defined the process as, quote, the process of scattering information seamlessly through the text as opposed to stopping the story to impart the information. This stopping the story to overtly exposit is otherwise known as an information dump, or less charitably, as an idiot lecture. It is often tedious and a sign of lazy writing. Film often employs dialogue, flashbacks, background details, in-universe media, or voiceovers to do the heavy lifting of exposition. When writers get it right, it's seamless, and when they don't, well, it drags literally and figuratively. So I want to consider what makes good exposition good and what makes it suck, and then consider where Zachariah fits along that spectrum. The examples I'll refer to come primarily from movies, and I suppose if I was going to make an apples-to-apples comparison, I would employ examples from narrative fiction, but that would involve extended readings and theoretically have, you know, the luxury of endless pages to world-build, and I'm looking at you, Tolkien, in particular. But in the visual realm, 
You have to use words and images to engage the audience, and you can't blabber on. And as much as I consider myself a reader, I like movies a little bit more, and I sound less like an effete snob talking about movies, which leads me to my first consideration. One would think that overly long exposition would immediately consign it to the suck category. How long can you blather on about setting or backstory or prior plot points? Take this example from the otherwise garbage Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets. It's a wordless opening montage which sets the stage for the story, where, to the music of David Bowie's Space Oddity, we witness the evolution of the space program in the 1960s, the construction of humanity's first platform in space, how that platform grows and expands, becoming a place for all nations and cultures to come together, to greet each other in peace. The same three crewmen greeting guests throughout the 21st century, and then in 2150, first contact with an alien species in the same passageway, with the same array of officers of the station extending a hand in greeting. And now, the parade of alien species, each contingent more fantastic and different than its predecessor, greeted by the welcoming committee, still accompanied by Bowie. Not a word of dialogue, until Rutger Hauer establishes the central conflict of the film at 3 minutes and 30 seconds. If only the subsequent two hours and 13 minutes could have unfolded wordlessly accompanied by other tunes by David Bowie, it might have been a better film. Okay, moving on. Here's an example of bad exposition, and it took barely 10 seconds from the Disney movie Big Hero 6, based on the Marvel comic of the same name, created by Man of Action. The protagonist, Hiro Yamada, is a 14-year-old robotics genius living with his older brother Tadashi and his aunt and guardian Cass. How do we discover why they are living with Aunt Cass? Check out this gem of expository dialogue between the elder Tadashi and Hiro. Oh, what would mom and dad say? I don't know. They're, they're gone. They died when I was three, remember? No, I don't think Tadashi would remember that their parents died when Hiro was three. Whew. Moving on. The Godfather, a film which many regard as a masterpiece. I concur, especially when thinking of Connie's wedding. Michael Corleone, in his finest dress uniform, brings his new girlfriend Kay to his sister's wedding. Kay, like us, is totally unschooled in the world of Michael's family, the world of the mafia. Let's have a listen and see how the exposition unfolds in this very brief scene. In 90 seconds, we learn all we need to know about how things work in the Corleone family. Michael, you never told me you knew Johnny Fontaine. Sure. You want to meet him? Huh? Oh, well, sure. My father helped him with his career. Well, my father. He did? How? I have but one. Let's listen to the song. No, Michael. This heart I bring I have but one heart to share with you, I have but one dream that I can cling to. You are the one dream I pray comes true. Please, Mike, tell me. My darling and 
Well, when Johnny was first starting out, he was signed to this personal service contract with a big band leader. And as his career got better and better, he wanted to get out of it. Now, Johnny is my father's godson. And my father went to see this band leader. And they offered him $10,000 to let Johnny go. But the band leader said no. So the next day, my father went to see him, only this time with Luca Brazzi. And within an hour, he signed a release for a certified check of $1,000. How'd he do that? My father made him an offer he couldn't refuse. What was that? Luca Brazzi held a gun to his head. And my father assured him that either his brains or his signature would be on the contract. That's a true story. That's my family, Kate. It's not me. Did you catch that last line, how Michael says, that's my family, Kay, that's not me? That's going to be a huge conflict within Michael, between Michael and Kay, and between Michael and the family. The last example comes from Game of Thrones, which established a whole new genre of expositional storytelling, sex position. Miles McNutt is a fellow Canadian, assistant professor in media and cultural studies, writer and TV critic at large for Cultural Learning and the AV Club. He coined the phrase sex position to specifically respond to nudity on Game of Thrones, though it has since been applied retroactively to other shows like the prestige HBO series The Sopranos, which often set exposition scenes in a strip club. McNutt first used the term in his May 29th, 2011 review of Episode 7, Season 1, entitled You Win or You Die. In this episode, Peter Baelish, otherwise known as Littlefinger, explains his past while he puts two of his prostitutes through their paces. It's quite a lengthy scene. We're not just along for the ride to see two nude women writhing around and simulating sex. The charade has clear thematic implications on Littlefinger's view of power. Do you know what I learned losing that duel? I learned that I'll never win. Not that way. That's their game. Their rules. I'm not going to fight them. I'm going to fuck them. That's what I know. That's what I am. And only by admitting what we are can we get what we want. And what do you want? Oh, everything, my dear. Everything there is. Now wash yourselves. Both of you are working tonight. Littlefinger is the prostitute of the government. He's always able to convince the people in power that they are in control when it's really a charade. Earlier in the scene, Littlefinger tells Rose that her clients will know that she is a sex worker and won't be swayed by easy manipulations. Rather, the trick is to very slowly convince the client that he really is something special, that he truly has impressed her and earned her devotion. This mirrors what Littlefinger is doing with Ned Stark. He knows that Ned knows that he's a manipulative courtier, but Littlefinger seduces Ned by slowly convincing Ned that he brought out Baelish's good side, and that Ned's superior honor convinced Baelish to do the right thing, 
even though Littlefinger was set to betray Ned all along. So well done, so smoothly executed, and the nudity definitely keeps the mostly male viewers engaged through the very long explanation. I'll include a link to the appropriately named McNutt's full piece at culturallearning at thenextjew.com. So as we're about to wrap, let's bring Zachariah back in. And in light of the previous examples, is the exposition in chapters 1 through 3 clunky or elegant? Before I pass judgment on Zachariah's storytelling skills, I want to consider for a moment whether what he's doing is even exposition or simply explanation. In each instance, Zachariah is confronted with a plot point something that we as readers assume he'll be able to parse and comprehend, but in each instance, he is as befuddled as we are. He's like Kay at the Corleone wedding. He needs someone to explain. So there's his trusty angel right there by his side, ready to unpack the vision of the man among the myrtles, and he gets help, drunk history style from the man among the myrtles himself. The angel does the same when Zachariah is confounded by the four horns and the four smiths, and with each new layer and each new character introduced to Zachariah slash us, the angel is there to explain. And when we get into the weirdness of Yoshua ben Yotzadak being rebuked by Satan, the angel is there to not only rebuke Satan, but to explain what he's doing while he's doing the rebuking and the saving of the day. So first of all, it's a clever device to have a trusty and novel explainer to do the exposition. It's not as sexy as Game of Thrones, but novel nonetheless. And it's also clever to have the guide on the side also take a prominent role in the plot as well. Nonetheless, the setup for each interaction, Zachariah, hey, what does this mean? Angel, let me explain, is a bit clunky. Yet forgivable, as Zachariah arguably articulates what we're thinking when we experience the weirdness on the page, or sit through Terrence Malick's Tree of Life. Now that movie could have used a legion of angels to shed a little light on whatever the hell that ponderous movie was about. Evolution? Existence? Anyway, I give Zachariah's exposition an 8 out of 10 and another solid 8 for execution and the excellent practical effects, so I would definitely recommend. And if you're interested in more, come on back in a fortnight for more visions, more exposition, and more angels. If you like what you heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Send a friend an email to say, Hey, would it kill you to check out TanakhCast? Or even better, write a brief review at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Smart Radio, or SoundCloud. It's a small thing, really, but it will help other people who might be interested in some Bible learning find this podcast. Or if you want to help in a bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for TanakhCast and pledge your shekels either on a one-time or monthly basis and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for... Episode 149, when we continue in the Book of Zechariah with chapters 4 through 7.